We are welcoming Aaron Longbreak, who's going to give us a lecture on the pathophysiology and diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. So uh, Dr. Longbreak is an assistant professor in neuroimmunology in our department. We also uh, have here uh, Chris Trainer, one of our residents, our PGY4 residents. Hi, Chris. And uh, Lindsay McAlpine, uh, one of our uh, rising chief education chief residents and a PGY3 in our department. Hi, hi, Lindsay. Hello. All right, uh, Dr. Longbreak, can you uh, get started? And periodically, we'll interrupt and I'll ask you questions. So the topic for today is multiple sclerosis, pathophysiology, and diagnosis. Um, basically, today we're going to talk about MS. What is it? Who gets it? We're going to spend some time talking about what causes MS, what we know, and what we're learning, and what it looks like, um, both radiologically and clinically. And then we'll spend some time talking about diagnosis of MS and how we do that in 2020. So MS is a chronic, often though not always, disabling disease, which attacks the central nervous system, specifically the brain, the spinal cord, and or the optic nerves. And MS is an autoimmune disease. Um, it is the most common cause of neurologic disability among young, otherwise healthy individuals, um, and really second only to congestive heart failure in terms of the burden it places on the healthcare system. Uh, natural history of MS is that within 15 years of diagnosis, half of people will require ambulatory assistance in the form of a cane or a walker or a wheelchair. That is untreated MS. Um, just a clarification there. The lifespan for people with MS is not substantially decreased. Um, people generally live a fairly normal lifespan, but because they are diagnosed young and um, they're not dying young, what you end up with is individuals who are living with neurologic disability for most of their adult life. And MS is very expensive. Um, these figures are probably out of date now, but well over $2 million uh, per patient lifetime cost is probably high, much higher than that now. So what is MS on a pathologic basis? What you would see if you did a tissue section and you went and looked at the MS lesions, you would find inflammation and demyelination. You would find not only demyelination, but you would also find axon damage. And this is not a late finding. Axon damage begins often early in the disease and um, contributes to the pathology and the disability that we see. And MS, even though you may find some old textbooks telling you that it's the pathognomonic white matter disease, that's completely untrue in that MS affects both gray and white matter. And um, the gray matter lesions are more difficult to see on, on radiologic MRIs. Uh, but they're definitely there and contributing to disability. The cortical lesions, the gray matter lesions, as I, as I told you, they're very common. Um, they do correlate better with some of the more generalized symptoms of Emma, like cognitive problems, than the traditional white matter lesions do. And um, that's basically all the time we're going to spend on pathology today. Um, there's also inflammatory infiltrates in um, MS. T cells more than B cells, CD8 cells more than CD4 cells. Uh, but again, we're going to move on from the pathology and start focusing more on the patient demographic of who do we see with this disease. So just, I'm going to interrupt there, uh, Dr. Longbreak, sure. and just ask you some questions about that. Um, I think 
the traditional learning that this is a white matter demyelinating disease, as you said, has, has really been clarified over the last few years. But I guess what I wanted to understand is what is the process or what is the proposed process by which the uh, gray matter disease happens early? Is it that axons die back and then you get neuronal loss or is there direct inflammation and attack on, on neuron cell bodies or, or what is it? That's a great question. I don't know that I've seen much in the literature about that. So the, I suspect that the demyelination and transection of the axons um, occurs early in the disease and that the location of that damage isn't focal. It's not localized to only a certain region of the sienna. Um, but I'm not sure that we understand particularly well why MS tends to hone to the specific regions that it does tend to like. And a second question I have about that actually is, it, does it depend on the individual? Or, um, we do see some people who have more prominent early cognitive symptoms or seem to have more prominent progression of, of uh, atrophy and gray matter disease. Uh, is this, are there inter individual variability in terms of the pathological process? There probably are, and there's varying opinions um, about that. And so what you end up with the heter individual level heterogeneity in, in the terms of pathology is you end up with a lot of opinions and not a lot of data because for most individuals, we don't have tissue to study. But that being said, there are varying pathologic patterns that are described in individuals with MS. And there's certainly thought that may have bearing on the degree to which they experience certain types of symptoms. Um, it's well described that there's individuals who have near normal appearing MRIs and yet have completely disabling fatigue or cognitive disability. And it's entirely possible that that could be due more to gray matter damage that's not well appreciated on traditional clinical MRIs. Um, it's, a, it's an area that there's a lot of active research into um, but one that it's, it's tough to really get down to the meat of things because the individuals who we have tissue on tend to have a very specific phenotype in another tumor factor disease or they're really aggressive disease. Other people don't get biopsied and aren't dying, so it's hard to be certain. I also have another question about the gray matter disease. Um, if, if cortical gray matter is affected, which we know it is in MS, why don't we see um, more seizures, like in the case of stroke damaging cortical gray matter? That's a great question, Lindsay. Um, seizures can be seen in MS, but they are rare. It's, a, it's an uncommon um, presentation. It may have to do, you know, with the type of damage that is being seen. Um, it's definitely MS lesions don't tend to have the same um, uh, presentation clinically as certain other types of pathologies. So for example, most strokes you would see immediate pathology, whereas many MS lesions are silent upon onset. Um, it's most of the time when someone receives a diagnosis of MS, an evaluation of the MRI shows often dozens of lesions, which had no clinical correlate at the time they appeared. And that's one of the distinguishing features in some sense of, of um, demyelinating disease is that the lesions can be silent. Um, unlike, uh, for example, many strokes um, or tumors, which tend to create uh, more symptoms that go along with the lesions. 
So let's just move on into the patient demographic that is usually seen with a diagnosis of MS. It usually presents between age of 15 to 45, and then of course would continue through the lifespan. Um, it is approximately 70% women, and Caucasians are predominantly affected more so than other ethnic groups. Um, the numbers on MS incidence and prevalence worldwide are out of date, but uh, there aren't better studies capturing these um, data. So what we work with is at least 12,000 new cases per year, at least half a million in the US, and at least two million worldwide. All of those are probably low estimates. And the prevalence of MS does increase um, with distance from the equator in both directions. So it's very uncommon in equatorial regions. But the further north and the further south you get, the more likely um, you are to see a diagnosis of MS. And I remember uh, getting back to that uh, distance from the equator issue. I, I remember reading a few studies from about 10 years ago about people that had moved. Uh, and it seemed to be around mid-teen years seemed to be important. So if people moved from a low pre prevalence region to a high prevalence region, if they moved before their teenage years, they had a much higher risk of developing MS. And if they moved after, they tended to keep the risk that they had uh, uh, from whatever region they were from, uh, which I thought was interesting. And that might come to what you're going to discuss further, but I wonder if you had any comments about that. Um, no, that, that is the observation. And there's been some interest uh, more recently about um, there are certain regions that seem to have less of the geographic predisposition now than they used to. Uh, but I'm not that I wouldn't say that's holding true across the board. So um, we do wonder about uh, environmental factors that may be particularly important in young adulthood or in early adolescence um, as potentially being a, one of the reasons why this equatorial, I'm sorry, this um, geographic distribution of MS is observed. MS is thought to be caused by a complex interplay of environmental and genetic and immune factors. So the, the thought model for getting MS is that you have an individual who is genetically predisposed to autoimmunity, that they have a cohort of genes and none of them are high risk genes. Instead, you have several hundred genes that all have a low risk um, of, of disease. And the cumulative effect of several hundred genes is what would give you then a, a back genetic background that was susceptible to autoimmunity or, uh, or not. You then require a second hit, and usually that's thought to be something in the environment, and there's a number of environmental factors which are known, probably others that aren't. And the combination of that um, environmental second hit on a genetically susceptible individual results in autoimmunity whereby the immune system is targeting the CNS. So from a risk factor, the genetic risk factors, um, the strongest association with multiple sclerosis is in HLA-DR15. Um, and that is by far the, the strongest genetic risk factor. At the moment, there are 233 total genes that have been identified, um, which Increased risk of MS usually with a uh, hazard ratio of just over one, um, but there's thought that there's probably somewhere in the order of 500 genes um, that are expected to 
play a small risk in developing MS. And it's the combination of many of these high-risk alleles that cumulatively increases the risk of MS. In terms of family history, approximately 15% of patients who have MS will also have a blood relation with MS. In the general population, the risk is about one in a thousand or 0.1%. Um, for siblings, there's a two to 3% concordance rate. And uh, when identical twins, the concordance rate is more like 25 to 30%. MS does share a genetic background with other types of autoimmune diseases. So as you can see, this um, heat map is showing uh, different diseases that are closely related genetically. And so the ones that are close to each other on the timeline are more closely related. The ones that are far apart are less closely related on a genetic basis. And you can see that right next to MS, you have celiac disease, you have rheumatoid arthritis, Graves disease, vitiligo, systemic sclerosis, um, type 1 diabetes, and you know, a lot of autoimmune diseases will cluster together in terms of the genetic background. So it does seem to be that there is this genetic background that's susceptible to autoimmunity in general, and that the specific type of autoimmunity perhaps is dependent on the environmental second In terms of what do we know about these environmental risk factors, we do know that Epstein-Barr virus infection is almost ubiquitous among MS patients, and it is uh, common but not as ubiquitous in the general population. Smokers have a higher risk of developing MS, um, and that risk does abate after they quit. So smoking cessation should certainly be advocated for all MS patients. Vitamin D deficiency is very common in MS, and the risk of developing MS does um, seem to decrease as you increase the vitamin D levels. And then another environmental factor is childhood or adolescence obesity. Um, which has been associated with an increased risk of disease. Just going back to those, what are some of the thoughts around the connection between those risk factors and pathophysiology? I mean, the most obvious is the vitamin D and geographical relationships. Um, but I'm interested about uh, the smoking and the obesity, those lifestyle factors. Finding the way in which these environmental factors impact the, you know, the immune system is really interesting and challenging. One possibility is that it could be epigenetic modifications of genes that lead to um, a change in the susceptibility or push the immune system into a more self-reactive state. Another possibility, which I'm um, really interested in, is that factors such as the gut microbiota could be a factor um, which links the environment and the immune system. So, for example, <clears throat> the types of bacteria excuse me, um, the types of bacteria in the gut can be impacted by environmental factors, including diet, including obesity, including smoking. Um, and the types of bacteria in the gut also have a very substantial impact on the phenotype of the immune system, both circulating and within the gastric mucosa. So something like that is also a really interesting um, putative mediator of some of these genetic environmental immune interactions. But the short answer is we really don't know. Um, we have a lot of ideas, but uh, we aren't, no one is sure as to what mediates those, those relationships other than that um, observation says that they, they are mediated and the mechanism is, is not clear but lots of really interesting things going on to try and sort that out. We've mentioned that MS is an autoimmune condition. 
the specific immunologic deficits in MS are subtle. So it is not a myasthenia gravis where you can have a known autoantibody that causes your disease. Um, MS immunologic deficits are more global, more subtle. So on average, the Th17 immune cells, which these are a subtype of helper T cells, um, that tend to produce pro-inflammatory cytokines, including IL-23, IL-17, GM-CSF. Um, you think of these cells as being more pro-inflammatory. And these cells um, are, are more likely to be present, to be activated. Um, the uh, myelin-reactive T cells, which occur in everyone, everyone has myelin-reactive T cells in their immune system, but for most of us who don't have autoimmune diseases, those cells tend to have a more anti-inflammatory or Th2 phenotype. Um, in MS patients, those self-reactive and reactive cells tend to have more of a Th17 or more pro-inflammatory phenotype. So um, that is one change in the immune system. The regulatory T cells, which are the, the checks on the immune system, are also dysregulated in MS. They're more likely to behave in a pro-inflammatory fashion and an anti-inflammatory fashion, and they seem to have an impaired ability to suppress um, activated T cells. B cells are also involved, and this wasn't appreciated till relatively recently, um, but depleting mature B cells from MS patients essentially eliminates relapses and radiologic evidence of new disease. There isn't a specific antibody, so this is not thought to be antibody-mediated, but it's thought to perhaps have to do with the role of B cells as antigen presenting T cells and facilitating a pathologic T cell response. So the, um, so yeah, so that's, that's just a little bit about the specific immunologic deficits in MS. I'm going to move on uh, to talk about radiologic criteria um, for MS and what the disease looks like on a radiologic basis, since this is often the first um, warning that someone may have a problem. So MS lesions have a characteristic morphology and a characteristic location. They're best seen on T2 flare images, and flare in particular is the best sequence for looking at MS lesions um, due to their uh, proximity to the um, CSF in the, in the ventricles. The characteristic locations for MS are four. They are periventricular. Uh, they're these are the oval, perpendicular, Dawson finger appearance lesions that um, are the pathognomonic MS lesions, so periventricular lesions. Number two is juxtacortical or cortical lesions. A word on juxtacortical, that means it is, that lesion is touching the cortex. It is touching or it is in the cortex. If it's not touching the cortex, it's not a juxtacortical lesion, it's more of a subcortical lesion. And subcortical lesions are nonspecific. They're not pathognomonic for MS, and they don't count for kind of making your determination about whether or not this lesion is suggestive of MS. So in terms of the, the classic MS locations, paraventricular, juxtacortical, or cortical. The third is infratentorial. The fourth is the spinal cord. Those are the four characteristic locations for MS. And um, we'll get to this in a second, but for the diagnostic criteria of MS, you need to have at least one lesion in, in multiple of these locations, at least two of these locations. So, so remember the, the four characteristic locations. Other common findings, but not ones that are in the diagnostic criteria, is thinning of the corpus callosum. 
uh, T1 hypo-intense, quote-unquote, black hole, contrast-enhancing lesions, and atrophy. And this can be global atrophy, or it can be regional, but uh, atrophy overall. The classic appearance of MS lesions in the cord are short segments, uh, usually um, lateralized in some way, so they're often on one side of the cord more than another, but short segment, uh, patchy lesions. The cervical spine is the most common region, followed by the thoracic spine. And for the spinal imaging, what, what's the best sequence to use to see those um, images and minimize artifacts? So I usually look at the stir sagittal images first. Um, you can see some X artifact on the stir sequences. Uh, so once I've looked at the stir, then I'll also look at the T2 sagittals to see if I see it there. And then I'll look at the T2 and the axials. And ideally, you'd like to see the same lesion in at least two different sequences. So if you think you see something on the sagittal stir, and then you can also identify something in that region on the axial, then you can feel pretty confident that it's real. If you only see it in one cut, one location, then it has to be um, questioned. And so um, you do have to be careful with spinal lesions because there's often artifact or movement that can obscure what you're seeing. So. Definitely. They can be tricky. But I, I usually start with sagittal, either STIR or T2. And then um, if I'm not convinced on those, then I'll move to axials to try and confirm the location. Just a little bit about some cutting edge uh, stuff is the central vein sign. So new research suggests that MS lesions frequently have a central vein. And that's um, and what you end up seeing is you see a hypo-intense linear structure, a uh, central vein running through the center of, uh, an, of an MS lesion. And you can, should be able to see this on at least two planes to be confident that it's real. But the majority of MS lesions do seem to have central veins, whereas um, white matter lesions caused by other pathologies like uh, small vessel disease or like migraine don't have those central veins. And this is emerging as something that may help us distinguish between this uh, less specific white matter lesions um, that aren't pathognomonic for, for demyelination. So this is an emerging field. On that, is that thought to be related to like, you know, the fact that the inflammatory cells are coming from the, I mean, I know it's hard because obviously they're just in the blood, but is that thought to be related <laughs> to, you know, inflammation being perivenual as opposed to like periarterial and other kind of like vasculitis diseases? It's possible. I, I don't think that they've fully elucidated the pathology yet, but yes, it's thought to be due to um, immune cells migrating out from the, the venules and causing perivascular inflammation. Um, that's the best explanation at this point that I've, I've seen. So from a clinical perspective, and we touched on this earlier, um, the, the type of symptom that someone with MS has generally speaking, will depend on the location, size, and number of their lesions. Um, and, and intranuclear ophthalmoplegia is going to be caused by a lesion in the medial longitudinal spiculus. You know, these brainstem lesions are going to cause car corresponding clinical symptoms often. However, there are a lot of MS lesions that are clinically silent that don't cause symptoms. And the, the explanation for that is really not completely clear. But it's one of the things that sets demyelination apart. You can have a brain that really looks quite horrendous and you can have a completely normal neurologic exam. So 
Diagnosing MS, it is ultimately a clinical diagnosis and a diagnosis of exclusion. There is no one test that definitively diagnoses MS. Um, it is not a test, it is not a diagnosis that can be made by the radiologist reading the MRI. There are two essential elements for diagnosing MS, that's dissemination in time and dissemination in space. And then the also, you need to exclude better explanations. So going back to it being a diagnosis of exclusion. The dem dissemination in time means you have to have lesions developing at more than one time. It has to be more than one episode of CNS dysfunction. Dissemination in space it has to involve more than one region of the CNS. So to make this diagnosis, we use the 2017 McDonald criteria, which um, are published guidelines for how to diagnose MS based on a combination of clinical and radiologic appearance. It is very important to note that the 2017 McDonald criteria only apply when individuals have a quote-unquote typical clinical presentation. That means that your patient who shows up with the really weird story and you can't figure out, make, can't make heads or tail of it, this is not a person who can blindly apply McDonald criteria in and say, oh, it's, it's MS. So just please keep that in mind. These are limitations of the diagnostic criteria and uh, need to be remembered. You can't apply them as a blanket statement. So dissemination in space can be demonstrated by one or more lesion, characteristic of MS, in two of the four locations we talked about earlier. So periventricular, dextrocortical or cortical, infratentorial, spinal cord. You have to have at least one lesion in at least two of those four regions. Demonstration, dissemination in time can be disseminated, I'm sorry, can be demonstrated by a couple different ways. Um, you can have both gadolinium enhancing and non-enhancing lesions at a, on a single MRI that meets criteria for dissemination in time. You can have a silent lesion develop on a follow-up MRI at least three months later. That would be, again, that meets criteria for dissemination in time. You can have clinical attacks that are localizable to distinct regions of the CNS at different times, which again, that, that meets criteria for dissemination in time. And then another way of demonstrating dissemination in time can be that you have characteristic brain lesions and you have positive oligoclonal bands in the CSF. This was a new addition to the 2017 criteria, um, but they have allowed for um, oligoclonal bands in the CSF to help you meet the uh, dissemination in time criteria. For progressive MS, which is we haven't spent a lot of time talking about, but progressive MS, uh, you require the same imaging criteria um, plus a year or more of slow accumulation of neurologic disability. And then you have to have two or more of the criteria so that the imaging criteria are the same. Um, you can have two lesions in the spinal cord plus oligoclonal bands. And if you have both of those things, you can not have brain lesions, um, but you have to have two or more of these criteria to meet a definition of primary progressive multiple sclerosis. The take home messages on the criteria are that um, you can diagnose MS based on multiple typical clinical episodes. You can diagnose it based on one episode in a characteristic MRI. 
You can diagnose it based on one episode, an MRI, and characteristic spinal fluid, but you cannot diagnose MS based on MRI alone, and so it's, it's not something that the radiologist can diagnose for you. Additional tools to help make the diagnosis, lumbar puncture is very helpful, and if there's any diagnostic confusion whatsoever, you should do the lumbar puncture. Um, at Yale, we would recommend doing the LP really in almost every case. Characteristically, the CSF will be acellular or perhaps just a mild lymphocytosis or pleocytosis with a lymphocytic predominance. Uh, protein is typically normal, perhaps just slightly elevated. Positive CSF-restricted oligoclonal bands is the most helpful test, and an elevated IgG index can also be seen. Other ancillary tests that are sometimes helpful can include evoked potentials, for example, visual evoked potentials or optical coherence tomography, which again. So just uh, going back, uh, Dr. Longbreak, uh, in terms of CSF cell count, uh, there's been, we've had questions about that come up uh, here and there. What is your sense of sort of an upper limit of what might be expected in terms of a white cell count in the CSF for somebody with multiple sclerosis in an acute attack? I would say most patients are probably going to be a 15 or less. I think I've seen it in the mid-20s, and that has also been MS. Getting higher than that, you want to think long and hard about alternative options. Does that help? Yeah. Most patients are probably going to be in the kind of 5 to 10 type of pleocytosis range. I've seen them be higher, um, but it's not as common. Great. Um, and likewise, the protein, I'd say most often you're thinking kind of 40s to 60s is kind of your range. If it's high, it's somewhere in that ballpark. If it's 100 or greater, you want to think long and hard. Uh, that's not typical for MS to be 100 or greater for protein in the CSF. Going to try and move quickly through the natural history and prognosis. Um, most people with MS have relapsing remitting disease where there's a discrete localizable clinical episode, which then resolves over days, weeks, or months, can resolve completely, can resolve partially, but it does get better. And these relapses come on intermittently throughout years. Each relapse is usually accompanied by new enhancing brain lesions, um, which accumulate over time, and disability tends to also accumulate over time. Given relapsing MS, given enough time, and it tends to become progressive. And when I say MS is progressive, that means that instead of being these punctuated relapses, you have a slow progression of disability, which is slowly cumulative over months and years, and it does not get better with time. Um, those symptoms may wax and wane. You can have good days and bad days throughout a progressive course, but the overall uh, trajectory is for progression and worsening of neurologic symptoms. And then there's primary progressive MS, which again, that same definition of progression, but these people never have relapses. Um, and that distinguishes primary progressive from secondary progressive MS. Secondary progressive follows a relapsing stage. We talk now about disease activity and as uh, disease activity and disease progression as being two different phenomenon. So disease activity would be a clinical relapse, as I described. It would be uh, radiologic activity in the form of new gadolinium enhancing or new T2 lesions. Uh, and disease activity tends to represent a wave of outside-in inflammation, new breakdown of the blood-brain barrier, influx of immune cells, new damage caused by that wave of inflammation. 
um, and eventually that should get better. So that's disease activity. Disease progression, again, this is the slow, steady worsening over months and years without um, ever getting better. And this likely represents inflammation that's locked in behind the blood-brain barrier um, and neurodegeneration as opposed to these bursts of inflammation. These are two separate pathologies. Prognostic indicators, uh, optic neuritis at onset, sensory onset, little disability at five years, relapsing remitting course, full recovery between attacks, and few or no oligoclonal bands at diagnosis. All of these things have been associated with a more mild uh, disease course. Um, bad prognosis, cerebellar, motor, many attacks, a progressive course. African-Americans have been associated with a more aggressive disease phenotype um, and high burden of disease on the baseline MRI also associated with a more severe course. And we talked a little bit about disease uh, natural history in that about half, again, this is natural history. This is really, we're not thinking about people who are treated here. So without treatment, half of patients will become secondary progressive in a decade. Um, with half requiring an ambulatory assistance after 15 years, 90% with major lower extremity disability within 20 to 25 years, half or more with measurable cognitive impairment that can occur even early on, and only about up to a third of patients still working after 15 years. And again, just to reiterate, these are not treated numbers. We believe that these numbers are getting better with the effective treatments that we now have. So MS is a relatively common neurologic problem causing significant disability among young adults. It is a clinical diagnosis. Um, MRI is super helpful and in making a diagnosis. You can recognize patterns that let you be more confident in the diagnosis. And your CSF is your most helpful ancillary test to corroborate your diagnosis. Thank you so much, Dr. Longbreak. That was an excellent summary of some of the major considerations in MS pathophysiology and diagnosis, and I think that will be an essential component of a lot of our residents' learning, and thanks again for doing it.